Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Happy Valentine's Day. Hawaii Talks on the conversation. A measure to legalize recreational marijuana is advancing in the state Senate, but will there be enough support in the House to see it through? We talk with actor and advocate George Takei. He'll be in town this weekend. He reflects on a dark time for Japanese Americans interred in camps during World War II. And among those rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs during the Super Bowl was a former NFL player who has settled into another career as an opera singer. We'll hear more about his story. It's the stuff that great stories are made of. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Earlier this month, Hawaii's top law enforcement officers came out swinging against a move to legalize recreational marijuana. They took the unusual step of calling a news conference to present their united opposition to a bill to decriminalize cannabis. This morning, HPR reporter Ashley Mazuo joins us in the studio. She's tracking the marijuana legislation this session. Good morning. Good morning. Happy to be here. Yes, happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's (laughs) Day. Um, So the Senate has introduced this big bill to legalize um, recreational marijuana here. It's 300 pages long. Um, and it was made, you know, with advisement from the attorney general's office and kind of modeling off of what they've done in Massachusetts. I want to note that the attorney general is does not support legalizing marijuana. They're just there to advise on how they could do it responsibly, essentially. Um, so if this bill passes, basically, it would legalize marijuana for people 21 years and older. And, you know, like dispensaries would have to check IDs. Like if you're going to like a bar or a club, it's the same kind of process. Um, uh, all the marijuana being sold needs to be tested by a lab and have the THC potency labeled on it and have generally, I want to say, kind of boring packaging that conceals um, the marijuana from being seen so it can't be transparent. And like the reason Mm -hmm. that I'm saying it's boring is because it has to be a solid color. They're trying to, I think, learn from some of the things that happened with youth vaping so that the advertising for it can't be child-friendly, like they can't call it candy or have fruits and animals on it as like advertisements. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So uh, the measure would only allow people who have been residents of Hawaii for at least five years to obtain a license to sell marijuana legally. It also creates two new special funds, one that would fund law enforcement and another that funds social equity and public health. Um, it also will impose a 10% tax on the marijuana, and that's on top of the 4% GET tax that would also be um, charged on it. Um, the proceeds of the marijuana tax at 10% rate, it's not going to go in to the general fund. It actually gets split between those two special funds. Um, but all of the fees and fines related to marijuana licensing, um, that goes strictly to the law enforcement fund. Um, and so that law enforcement fund would, you know, create something like a cannabis enforcement unit, like more law enforcement officers to to kind of enforce these these laws. Um, but the social equity fund is going to be used to fund a grant program for people who lived in what they're calling disadvantaged communities. Um, or just fairly impacted communities, but essentially disadvantaged communities trying to enter the marijuana industry. Um, It would also fund a public safety grant program that can be awarded to state and county agencies um, to assist with a variety of things, which ranges from, you know, even more law enforcement training to things like housing assistance, food banks, harm reduction, and yeah, it's just it's kind a of wide runs, net. Yeah, it's a very <laughs> wide net. Um, and on top of all that, they would uh, the bill would allow people who have been convicted of marijuana possession to have those records expunged. Um, those records are not going to be automatically expunged, though. People would have to petition the court themselves. Um, they just said that they don't have the ability to auto expunge um, records like that. Um, and basically, it would cost the state about a $38.7 million um, to fund this measure. Um, but Tai Cheng, the uh, chairman of the Hawaii Cannabis Industry Association, um, wrote in his testimony that it could be done for less. For example, in the bill, they talk about needing to set up a state laboratory to do all the testing of all of this recreational marijuana. And he says, you know, we could eliminate that $5 million um, expense because one already exists. And that, that, lab is basically testing medical marijuana products, so like why can't it test um, Mm -hmm. recreational? Um, He estimated that 
$35 million could be generated by the GET tax and the cannabis tax in the first year of legalization, and then $82 million after that market matures, like everyone has the licensing and people are buying. Um, but there are no official numbers from the government about how much revenue they're projecting yet. And then what was the testimony like just from the general public? Um, yeah, I would say it seemed a little like 50-50 split, um, people for and against. Um, a poll done by the Star Advertiser in 2022 said that 58% of Hawaii voters supported legalizing recreational marijuana to generate tax revenue, and 34% were against it, 8% undecided. Um, you know, when Governor Josh Green was campaigning for governor back then, he said that he supported marijuana legislation. Yeah, legalization. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and so... The room yesterday at the at the committee hearing was overflowing with people. There were people sitting outside, um, and there was 550 pages of written testimony submitted, and it was really split. Um, Honolulu prosecutor Steve Alm, you know, he raised his concerns with the legalization, and he's very against it. We look at other states like Colorado, who've had 10 years, who've looked at this. You are going to have more car crashes. You've got environmental problems. The, tea, the weed today is so much stronger. It was 3% back in the day. Now it's 20, 30, 40%. We've got kids going to the emergency room thinking they're going crazy because it's so much more powerful. And no matter what type of structure you set up, you will be legalizing a powerful drug and it will have a lot of bad consequences. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, you know, that thought, like this is a really different uh, strain, more powerful strains are out there. Right, yeah. And I just want to note, too, like, even though that's true, like, the THC potency amount would be written on the on the packaging. And so, yes, it's more potent. But in theory, you would you would understand if you're going to take the drug that it's that high potency level. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned earlier, he had uh, Steve, um, Prosecutor Steve Alm had organized that whole press conference last week. And, you know, even former Governor Linda Lingle came out to urge the state not to do it. Mayor Blanchiardi um, of Honolulu is also against it. Um, they're really concerned about, you know, crime increasing and younger children or or young adults um, accessing it and, of course, like DUIs. Um, but there are a lot of reasons to do it as well. You know, economically, it could be a huge driver to diversify Hawaii's economy. Here's Drew Daniels, Director of Marketing at Big Island Grow, a medical cannabis dispensary on Big Island. In the last three and a half years, I've traveled all over the country and I've seen the potential that this, that this creates. Uh, in my travels, I've met people from Hawaii pretty much everywhere. Every single one of them says almost the same exact thing to me. I wish I could come home and work in this industry. I think that this uh, legalization has the potential to not only keep Hawaii's young workforce home, I think it has potential to bring it home. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we saw, you know, what happened, you know, trying to get the medical marijuana legislation passed. That took a while. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see, I guess, if there's an appetite for recreational. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because it's a not exactly a partisan issue. Um, so they have Republican introducers as well, like Senator Brenton Awa and Kurt Favela. And there's Democrat senators on that bill, like Jared Keohokalole and Joyce Ann Bonaventura. Um, and this bill is just a lot more comprehensive than last year's attempt. Um, and the House has uh, marijuana bills moving forward as well. Um, so uh, the House passed a bill on second reading earlier this week that would decriminalize more amounts of marijuana. Um, so that would bring it from three ounce, three grams to one ounce and drop the fine to $25 instead of a $130 fine if you're found with that. Um, so, so it's, there seems to be a little bit more of a interest in legalizing marijuana, at least looking at, at how it's going to work, especially since the Attorney General um, has issued their report on, on how it could be done, and that's kind of how we got to this bill. Yeah, and so the, the Senate uh, then passed out its legislation yesterday at that hearing? Yes, yeah, it, they passed it out, and you know they're also watching the federal government to see what they do on that side, and so that's part of the reason why as well is to to see if our state will be prepared for whatever the federal government decides on marijuana as well. Okay, all right. Well, interesting issue, and uh, and you'll be tracking it. But thanks. thanks so much, Ashley. We've been talking to Ashley Mizuo. She's talking to build a legalized recreational marijuana, which cleared its first hearing in the Senate yesterday, and we told you we would be following this issue. And we asked you to share your feedback on the Talkback line. And this morning, we got this. 
Hi, my name is Casey Lee. I'm calling in from Haiku. I'm calling in regards to your segment on the legalization of recreational cannabis, and I am for this, mostly because the cannabis that would be legal and available to people would be at a much lower dose than medicinal cannabis, which is what makes it recreational. And this also will greatly decrease any risk of overdose or harm because it will be legislated and people will be able to access this substance safely and effectively. This also decreases the stigmatization of those utilizing cannabis medicinally. I am a home nurse on Maui, and a lot of my clients would benefit from this medication, but because of federal laws or even state laws, feel a lot of shame around accessing and obtaining it. So I'm hoping that also the legalization helps fight the stigma. Thank you. Thanks for the feedback. How do you feel about legalizing recreational marijuana in our state? Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa with info sessions for the 2024 Distance Learning Executive MBA and Master of HR Management, scheidler.hawaii.edu executive. HPR is hiring for a full-time membership manager. Are you experienced in nonprofit fundraising? A public radio superfan? This is the job opportunity for you. Join HBR's growing and passionate team. Apply by March 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Many will be observing the Day of Remembrance on Monday. President Biden set the day aside in 2022 to remember the over 125,000 Japanese Americans incarcerated in internment camps between 1942 and 1945. Here on Oahu, Honpa Hongwanji will be commemorating the occasion with two free lectures by actor and social justice advocate George Takei. Takei is best known for uh, the character Sulu from the original Star Trek series. He's also an author and the inspiration behind the stage production Allegiance, which portrays the story of Japanese-American families living in internment camps. The Conversations Russell Subiona got the chance to talk to Takei earlier this week. When we think about the conflicts going on around the world today in Ukraine and in Gaza, does that reframe the significance of the Day of Remembrance? Indeed it does, because I am committed to doing what I can to uh, prevent wars from happening because of my childhood experience being incarcerated in American prison camps because of the uh, irrational reaction that uh, the United States government and President Roosevelt had to uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. I think that's an important thing for, for many of us to remember. It's been over 80 years since World War II, and I feel like there have been generations that have come and may not necessarily remember the you know, the atrocities of, of war here in Hawaii at that time uh, and, and elsewhere in the United States when it came to the treatment of Japanese Americans and, and other minorities. Do you think it's important to continue to remind the newer generations just how terrible a lot of our Japanese American friends and families were treated at that time? Well, our uh, incarceration is a part of American history, and all Americans should know about it. And that's one of my mission, to enlighten Americans on a chapter of American history. But even more important, there are Japanese Americans. You use the word remember, but there are Japanese Americans, younger Japanese Americans, who know practically nothing about that chapter of American history. I've used the various platforms that I have accessible to me, including I'm an actor, and theater was one of those platforms. We produced and developed 
a Broadway musical on the internment of Japanese Americans during the Second World War. And after the show ended, so many younger Japanese Americans came backstage to tell me how moved they were by the story and by the drama that they just experienced, and that their parents or grandparents were in camp. That's the term we use. And so there's that connection. And I, I respond to them by saying, oh, which camp were they in? Their face is a blank. They don't know which camp they were in. And so to help them out, there were 10 camps altogether of the internment camps. There were many more Justice Department detention camps. But the bulk of the Japanese-American community on the mainland were in the 10 camps. And so I recite to them the, the states that were in. Were they in the blistering hot desert of Arizona? Or was it windswept high plains of Wyoming? Or the swamps of Arkansas? These are American places. Or Colorado or Idaho. Their face is a blank. They don't know anything other than the fact that their parents or grandparents were in camp, in quotes. And so I feel the urgency of getting the story out to Japanese Americans as well as the general American public because it's an important part of American history that has particular ramifications for what's going on today. So I uh, emphasize the importance of this story being an American story. The production that you talked about that was based on your experience in the internment camp, Allegiance, it was here in 2019, and I was able to catch a performance. This is the first time I had seen it. And there's so many parallels to things that we're seeing at the border nowadays and and, exactly. and things in our recent history, right? What drives you to continue to make a stand and, and continue to talk about your experience in the internment camp. What do you hope to achieve? Well, I was a child. I was five years old when the uh, soldiers marched up our driveway, stomped up to the front porch, and started banging on our front door with their fists and taken away literally at gunpoint, bayonet point, first to the uh, horse stables of Santa Anita Racetrack. Can you imagine taken from a two-bedroom home on Garnet Street in Los Angeles, a residential neighborhood, to a horse stall that was still rank, putrid with the, the stink of horse manure, insects skittering around on the ground, flies buzzing in the air, and my baby sister immediately got sick, and a few days after that, I got sick too. That was temporary while the camps were being built. And then we were put on a train, a journey of three days and two nights to the swamps of Arkansas, barbed wire, sentry towers, searchlights that followed me when I made the night dash to uh, the latrine. I mean, it was a prison camp. And then after a year of imprisonment, the government changed their mind. And we were all categorized as enemy alien, which was completely irrational. We weren't the enemy. We were Americans, and we weren't aliens. We were, <coughs> excuse me, born in the United States, raised in the United My mother was born in Sacramento, California. My father was from Japan, but he uh, was brought to San Francisco when he was a child, and so he was raised, educated, and went to college in uh, San Francisco. We were Americans. Yet they categorized us as enemy alien and imprisoned us for a year. But then the government changed its mind. They realized that they had a wartime manpower shortage. And here were all these young Americans in their mind now that they could have had. But how do you justify drafting young Americans categorized as enemy aliens already imprisoned in Barbour prison camp, their solution was even more irrational than categorizing us as enemy alien. They came down with a loyalty questionnaire, which wanted to determine our, in quotes, loyalty. 
The questioner had nothing to do with loyalty. It was all sorts of miscellaneous questions, but embedded in that loyalty questionnaire were two key questions that they wanted to get yes answers to, question 27 and question 28. 27 asked, are you willing to serve in the United States military on combat duty wherever ordered? The other key question, question 28, asked, and it was one sentence with two conflicting ideas. It asked, will you swear your loyalty to the United States of America and or swear your loyalty to the emperor of Japan? Those that answered yes, yes, were drafted or some volunteered out of camp and served in the legendary 442nd Regiment of Combat Team made up of primarily, in large number, young men from Hawaii and young men and women from Barbar Prison Camp made up the 442nd. My parents were sent to Tule Lake. It became the largest of all ten. There were 10 camps altogether, and Tule Lake became the most populous of the uh, camps. 18,000 people where other camps had anywhere from 6,000 to 12,000 people. And this became the harshest, most high-security segregation camp. So it became a very turbulent camp with lots of riots and the government sending in convoys of jeeps with armed soldiers to calm the rioting. My father was elected block manager at both the Arkansas camp and Tulee Lake. And so he knew a great deal about both camps. I was very young, and I I remember being scared when all this turbulence was happening. But I really didn't understand what was going on other than it was a scary experience. And when I became a teenager, I sat down with my father and had many after-dinner conversations to learn about the internment. And I learned a great deal from him as well as much reading that I did on that. And so I want to share this shameful history of America to younger Japanese Americans who know nothing of this and to the general American public on how fallible U.S. democracy can be. My father believed in our democracy. And when I, as a teenager, when I had these various discussions. He often quoted to me from Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. He said, our government is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. He said, these are noble ideals, but therein also lies the weakness of American democracy, because people are fallible human beings. They make mistakes. And even great presidents can make mistakes. And so he said, being an American imposes great responsibility on the citizens because citizens have to make the high shining ideals of our democracy strong and true. And when the people fail that, then irrationality takes over. And... uh, He said to his children, to me, my brother, and my sister, we as American citizens have to be actively involved in the process of our society. He encouraged all of us to be volunteers in various things and be active. And then he took me, even before I was registered to vote, he took me to the Adlai Stevenson for President campaign headquarters. And we volunteered After that first volunteer experience, I understood what my father meant by participatory democracy and the responsibility that American citizens have. And so since that time, I've been actively engaged as an American in the American process. 
That was actor and social justice advocate George Takei talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Takei will be giving two lectures in Nu'uanu on Sunday, February 18th. The morning lecture will be at the Honpa Hongwanji, and the evening lecture will be at the Pacific Buddhist Academy. Both are free to the public. We'll have links uh, on the conversation page of our website after the show. This week's performance for HPR's Mele Hawaii Performance Series is sold out. Mahalo for your support. This performance will be recorded for a later broadcast. For alerts on live performances at our Atherton studio, sign up for our free email newsletter at hawaiipublicradio.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from the Chamber of Sustainable Commerce, supporting businesses that are dedicated to the triple bottom line of people, planet, and prosperity, launching its directory of member businesses. Learn more at chamberofsustainablecommerce.org. Valentine's Day, and on this week's Mono Minute, we've got the songs of the Rose Ring Parakeet. But don't be fooled by its romantic-sounding name. These squawking, bright green airborne menaces make horrible dinner dates. Today's recordings are courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell La- Laboratory of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. There are no native parrots or parakeets in Hawaii, but many species have been brought here by people over the years and have escaped into the wild to form breeding populations. Among the most abundant are rose ring parakeets. They're emerald green and measure about 16 inches from the tip of their bright red hooked bill to the end of their long pointed tail. Only the males have the black to rose colored neck ring that gives them their name. Like all birds in the parrot family, They have what's known as zygodactylous feet, where two toes point forward and two toes point back. Rose ring parakeets are now considered to be the most widespread parrot in the world. They were first brought to Hawaii in the early 1960s as pets, and have since expanded to over 15,000 individuals, primarily on the islands of Kauai and Oahu. They roost together in large groups in big trees and may fly many miles to their foraging grounds. The large amounts of defecation below these trees in areas where people live is considered a health hazard. They can also be incredibly noisy when roosting. Perhaps you've heard the loud squawks of these birds when in flight or at their roost. Although highly intelligent and beautiful, they're considered to be severe agricultural pests throughout the world because they consume a huge variety of grains, fruits, and flowers. They're a particular problem for small farmers on Kauai who annually lose a large percentage of their crops to these birds. The Kauai Rose Ring Parakeet Working Group is actively searching for ways to reduce these losses and support these local farmers. Fortunately, these birds are found mostly in human-modified habitats and rarely are seen in our native forests. For this reason, and also because they mainly crush the seeds that they consume, they aren't considered to be effective dispersers of weeds that might compete with our native plant species, at least yet. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org.
This weekend, Tonga took center stage at an Oahu gala marking the 200th anniversary of the Council of Corps of Hawaii. Tonga's Honorary Council General Annie Kaneshiro was selected as Dean of the Corps, and she arranged for a very special singer to perform. Tonga native Ta'u Pupua uh, sang his country's national anthem with the Royal Hawaiian Band. Everyone took notice because, you see, Pupua is a professional opera singer. Here's a clip of a previous performance with a hundred-piece orchestra. This Pacific Island tenor lives in New York City and has performed in concerts in Europe and the Asia-Pacific region. Over the years, he has been on HBR's Airwaves with classic music host Gene Schiller, and his story about being a former NFL lineman has been shared on CNN and in New York Times. Bupua shared with us that he jumped at the chance to return to Oahu this weekend, where he lived for a time as a child. When they asked if I could come out to the event, and sing the Tonga National Anthem with the the Royal Hawaiian Band. You know, I've heard about the Royal Hawaiian Band ever since I was little. And to have that honor to sing with them uh, was incredible. But also they asked if I could sing a operatic aria during dinner, and I said, of course I could do that, yeah. Gosh, your story is a really interesting one. You have been on our airwaves before. You were an NFL player before uh, becoming an opera singer. Right. So I am from the island of Tonga and youngest of nine. And my parents moved to America when I was about four. And so we moved, we lived in Hawaii for about a year and a half. And then we moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, where I grew up. And life was hard growing up in Utah, though we didn't have much. And so I would go to school and then was introduced to football when I was about nine years old. And so I started playing football. And football was the vehicle that helped me get into college. Because mom and dad just didn't have the money to send off, you know, the ninth child to college. And so I got a full scholarship to go to Weber State University out in Utah, and then uh, was drafted in 1995 to the Cleveland Browns by Bill Belichick and was there for a year, and then the franchise moved to Baltimore and became the Baltimore Ravens. And I was there for a year, and then I got injured, and I left the sport. That must have just been heartbreaking. It was. It was, uh, gosh, I didn't know what to do with my life, you know, because I only knew football. I didn't know anything else. And so that drive home from Baltimore to Salt Lake City, Utah, was the longest drive ever in my life. And I had a lot of things to think about, like what I wanted to do with my life. So when I got to Salt Lake City, of course, I lived with my parents. I lived in the basement, and I was depressed for about three months. I didn't know what to do. And um, then I knew that in order for me to succeed in life, I needed to just get out of my parents' basement and find people with goals, people with positive energy. And uh, so I found a few friends at church and uh, we had, we all had goals and we all, we hung out with each other and we had dreams and we believed in each other's dreams. And so I think that's how it all started. And one thing led to another. I was introduced to a voice teacher in Utah and he took me to the Utah Opera and I joined the Utah Opera Chorus for a season and then I thought it was time for me to make the move to New York and so I packed my one suitcase and moved to New York and my parents and my grandmother was they were against it because the only New York they knew was the New York that they would see in movies with the graffitis and the crime. And so they really did not want me to go, but I had a dream. And so I said, I gotta go. And so my grandmother came out, gave me a hug and handed me a $100 bill. and said, this is all I have. And you know, I hope this will help you for the next chapter in your life. 
And I said, thanks, Grandma. So I took the money and moved to New York. And um, how does one become an opera singer? You know, um, I walked around Lincoln Center where the Metropolitan Opera House is and Juilliard. And I just kept on looking at the two buildings and thought to myself, how do you become an opera singer? Then I looked across the street and I saw all these restaurants. And I thought to myself, I need to meet people. And so I walked into one of the restaurants. Talk about um, being humble. You know, you play in front of 90,000, 100,000 people. But to walk into a restaurant and ask for a job (laughs) because you have a dream. And um, so I walked into a restaurant across the street from Lincoln Center. And they hired me on the spot because I knew that opera singers, musicians, love to eat. And I knew that if they come into the restaurant, I could talk to them, find out more about the music life. And so, lo and behold, they came in. And I remember seeing Placido Domingo coming in and Pavarotti coming in to eat. So I would study, study them. And um, the restaurants in New York are very loud and um, I would study to see, you know, how they would use their speaking voice to save their voice so they could sing. And I saw that Domingo will lean in and talk in a soft, hush voice to whoever they're with. Then I would watch what would they eat, because I know that certain foods give singers phlegm. And we don't want to be, we don't want to clear our voice <clears throat> like that <clears throat> all the time because it'll irritate your your vocal cords. And so I would see what they would eat and would they drink alcohol because I know that alcohol dries out the vocal cords. And so I would study these singers and musicians. And then, of course, students from Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music will come in and I will talk to them. If and you I, got in, you got into Juilliard. I mean, that must have been such a rush. Well, that was... Yeah, and so um, I worked at the restaurant for about six years because I had this dream. And I would leave the restaurant around 2 in the morning, and I just want to quit. But I l- just look across the street, and I see the Met and Juilliard, and I said, no, i got to keep going. Not just for myself, but also for my family and for the Tongan people, the Polynesian people. And so, um, yeah, six years. And then one year, um, I met a famous Maori opera soprano by the name of Dame Kiri Takanoa, who was signing autographs at the Metropolitan Opera. And I walked up to her to get her autograph, and she looked up and said, what are you doing here? You know, what do you do? And I said, I'm a tenor. And then she says, well, where do you go to school? And I'm like, nowhere. And she goes, well, how are things going? And I just stood there, you know, just didn't know what to say. And she goes, how's it going? You know, how's the singing coming on? Is anyone helping you? And I shook my head, no, no one's helping me. And she goes, she looks at me and she goes, well, how can I help you? I want to help you. And I said, okay. And so she gave me her phone number and I called her that night. And uh, six months later, she took me to Juilliard and brought me into the building and and into a room where there was a pianist and the boss of the vocal department of Juilliard was there. She said, now sing for us. I was so green. And I said, okay. So I sang an an aria and they looked at each other and I sang a second aria and Kiri said, there is diamond, you know, diamond in the rough, he, he needs polishing. So she said to the boss, the vocal department, what can we do for him? And he said, well, he could fill out an application and, you know, and come and try out. I can't just give him a scholarship. And so I had a month to learn five opera arias and a monologue. And so I did it. And I went in for the audition and walked in and never did, I never done anything like this. And at Juilliard, they had all the faculties right when I walked in through the door. They all sat at this long table that ran all the way across the room. And in the middle of the room was this 
piano that was lit up by a spotlight. And that's where I went and stood and sang my heart out and they asked for a monologue and did that. And we had callbacks. And so I came back to look at, at the list. I think there was about 115 of us or something like that. And I came and looked at the list and it went down to about 60 and I was one of the 60 and on to round two and then did the round two and came back that night to look at the list and went down to about 25 and then did a round three and it went down to 12. Torture. Um, 12 of us <laughs> and I was, yes, and I was one of the 12. And then they, uh, a month later, they called me and said, congratulations, you're one of four. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. And then you have uh, come back to Hawaii to sing uh, with the Hawaii Opera Theater? Yes, last time I was here, it, it was a while back, uh, 2013, and it was, the opera was Tosca by Puccini, and it went very well. And then the last time I was back was in 2020 to sing with the Hawaii Symphony, Beethoven's Ninth, right before the pandemic. And then you have been singing around the world. Yes, I've sung in Greece and Italy and Germany and China and Hong Kong and all these wonderful places. Denmark was another amazing place to sing and it's just been amazing because when they see me, they don't know where I'm from. And I would say I'm Tongan. They don't know what that is. And I will say I'm Polynesian. They still don't know what that is. And then I would say Hawaii. And they're like, oh, <laughs> you're Hawaiian. And I said, no, not Hawaiian, but okay. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, we were chatting earlier, and you had said, yeah, you wish that more Pacific Islanders would get into the classics. You know, I mean, you've been able to make a career out of it, and, uh, and you obviously love it. I mean... And you have a wonderful voice, a beautiful voice. Thank you. (laughs) So I guess, what would you like to say out there to a a young boy or girl out there like like Ta'u, who who got some help? Well, I think, you know, I would love to see more Polynesian singers out there. I think the thing is, it's just that we need to think outside of the box. We have to believe and dare to be different. Not everybody could be a Beyonce or you know, one of those artists nowadays. I think because classical music is something special. It's something that will live on forever and ever. I mean, we still speak of the name of Mozart, right? And Bach and Beethoven. A lot of the artists now, I mean, people still talk about the Beatles, but not as, you know, I don't think as much as Mozart or Beethoven, Mm -hmm. all those composers. But I just wish that a lot of the Polynesians, kids would, I think it all depends on what kind of music is played at home. And a lot of times, a lot of the kids are into rap music now. And there are some good rap music, but I find that a lot of the music nowadays, a lot of it has to do with degrading someone else Mm. rather than uplifting another person. And I find that classical music is that the type of music that uplifts the soul to a higher place. We have been hearing from Ta'u Pupua, a professional opera singer, the tenor from Tonga, whose professional football career as a lineman was cut short due to an injury, and then who turned to opera. So who did he root for during Super Bowl mm-hmm. Sunday this past weekend? We'll hear more after a break. Are you interested in working for one of Hawaii's most dynamic media organizations? HPR is looking to hire a full-time board operator with experience in digital media production and broadcasting. If you're a quick study, possess strong time management skills, have a dynamic on-air presence, and if you enjoy new and interesting workplace challenges, HPR wants to hear from you. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org jobs to learn more. 
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting David Hockney, Perspectives Should Be Reversed, prints from the collections of Jordan D. Schnitzer and his family foundation. On view now, honolulumuseum.org. Let's get back to our interview with opera tenor Ta'u Papua, a former NFL player who suffered a career-ending injury and found a new profession, singing. So who did he cheer for on Super Bowl Sunday? I was rooting for the team that, of course, won the Super Bowl. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think uh, a lot of people uh, that I was with, they wanted you know San Francisco to win. But I'm glad that Kansas won, and so I'm happy for that. Do you ever feel like this twinge, like, oh, you know, because your career was I, cut short because of I injury. used to. I used to. I used to watch the game and, and um, just had a lot of times of thinking about, you know, when I played. And so, and to see, but the game has changed so much now. You know, uh, there's a, the rules have changed a lot, and just also the... Um, the helmet, the shoulder pads, right. and all that, a lot has changed. Yeah. So you don't dwell so much on that. I used to miss playing, but because I came into opera, into classical, later in my life, I had to play catch-up. Because when I got into Juilliard, um, I didn't really know my do-re-mis, you know, which a lot of <laughs> a lot of my colleagues, they knew, you know, a, a lot of things that had related to music, you know, while they were learning their door means I was learning how to kill the quarterback. And so, <laughs> you know, it's just a whole different story. A yeah. different world. Yeah. Anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners just about the space that you live in? Well, I think what I want to share with the listeners is what can we do to make sure that art doesn't die? Classical music, because a lot of our youth are gravitating towards something that is for me, in my opinion, it's not so positive in one's life. And classical music is so important because, you know, there's been studies of how pregnant women would put headphones on their belly and, the, you know, and they would play classical music and how that, you know, baby reacts to that type of music. And I think music is so universal that it speaks in so many different languages. And so when you see a child growing up with beautiful music, you know, with orchestration or symphonies and or opera and all that, I think that child grows up to be a better person. And then did you have classical music growing up? I didn't have classical music growing up, but I did have Tongan choral music because my parents sang in the choir, my sisters sang in the Tongan choir, and the Tongan people love to sing. They just love to sing. And so I grew up in, you know, hearing my siblings and my parents singing in the choir and, of course, just church music. And so I grew up with that. I didn't get my taste of classical music until high school when I sang in the choir there. And then also my brother, when he went to the university, he had to do a report on classical composers. And he would come home and he would play all, all the music. these uh, music. Gotcha. I didn't care much about that kind of classical music. I guess because I was growing up, I wanted to be part of my teammates, you know, to listen to all that heavy metal and mm-hmm. rap music <laughs> because of playing football. But because of my brother playing Handel and Haydn and all that kind of music, that my ear just sort of just started to accept it. It was like a pill to calm calm me down. Go down, yeah. Uh, okay, so that. I need to ask, so people want to find out more, like, you know, how do we get plugged into where you might be singing this? You could go to taupapua.com. Mm-hmm. Um, it's my website, and I'll update it. Okay. Uh, have you gone back to Tonga, and, and have you been I was able to a, sing in the village? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was invited to give a concert in Tonga in 2023, last year, in June, the end of June, July. And so the crown prince was there and his family and the embassy from China and Tonga and Australia was there and the U.S. embassy was there. It it was such a wonderful and moving concert because 
I was able to see the hunger that these students in Tonga wanted. They wanted classical music because brass band is so big, big in Tonga, but to have a orchestra, shall we say, emerge from nothing. I mean, Tonga is a poor country. And so when I sang with the orchestra there, I didn't know what I was getting myself into because I've sung with so many great orchestras and conductors. And so when I got there, I was shocked to hear them play because, shocked and sad because the instruments that they were playing on, the violins and the violas and stuff, they were like hand-me-downs maybe four times. And the bows that they were playing on would break. And here in America, you know, it would break, but they would just throw the strings out mm. and replace it. And there in Tonga, they had to braid it and to find the, you know, they had to braid reuse it. They and reuse it. it. And re- <laughs> yeah. They had to do everything because they had no outlet. You know, they couldn't go and just down the street and buy something. And the place where they would practice, it was just barn-like. So if you could wave a magic wand, maybe that would be your wish for the, the kids in Tonga, the young musicians and budding well, um, singers, is maybe if they could get better instruments? That, but also I would love for them to have the opportunity to either you know come to America, to go to school there, or Australia or New Zealand, close by. And so at the concert, I raised that I wanted to help finding a way because America is incredible. And so these universities, they do have programs, you know, that outreach programs that would help, you know, talented, thriving students that don't have the opportunities to come out here. So I mentioned it at my um, concert. And so that when I get to America, that I will find a way to talk to some universities, maybe even donating instruments and and all that, you know, to send back to Tonga and maybe have a professor to go to Tonga and teach, something like that. And then I had a lot of wonderful people that came up to me and said that they want to help. But I'm still on that mission in helping that school out. And that was Ta'u Pupua, a professional opera singer, who a tenor who, who tales, hails from Tonga. He recalled his visit to his home island this past summer. He sang for students there, as well as for the groundbreaking of the U.S. Embassy in Tonga, where Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in attendance. <laughs> Well, we're out of time now, but up tomorrow, we plan to talk to Governor Josh Green. Got something you want to ask him? Leave your question on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The conversation is available as a podcast on our website or wherever you look for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. ¶¶